the revolution is not going to happen because of a CNN segment, you know? Hello, my name is Matt Pullman, and welcome to episode nine of Missing Words. In this episode, we sat down with Brooklyn-based author and journalist Michael Denzel Smith. His work has been published in the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Bleacher Report, The Nation, and so many more. In 2016, he released the book, Invisible Man Got the Whole World Watching, A Young Black Man's Education. The book is a very personal account that addresses being a young black man in the age of Obama. It's a powerful coming-of-age story that details Smith's personal struggles, advancements, and education in the face of seemingly never-ending despair and police brutality. The book obtained numerous accolades, and it was a New York Times bestseller. Late last year, Smith released another powerful statement via Harper's titled The Gatekeepers. In it, Smith addresses the burden of being seen as a black intellectual and dealing with the forces who control the way he reaches the masses in print and media. I was curious how the last couple years of Trump affected his views of the past, but also how it might have opened new doors. The way I read it, um, the way I read the election of Trump is sort of the last gasp of uh, white patriarchal capitalist power is saying we looked at what was happening. We saw that or felt that uh, there was a, there was danger uh, imminent. Uh, the election of Barack Obama, even for someone like me, can quibble with how progressive that era was. But for a lot of people, uh, they felt their way of life uh, their identity was under attack. And so uh, here comes the swing with Donald Trump uh, and everything that he, he brings. And so the, the sort of veneer of politeness has been dropped. And, and now we're looking at all of, uh, all of those very troubling, uh, very menacing, vile impulses being borne out uh, at the at the you know highest levels of government, and a lot of us, and, and I include myself, just don't really know how to react to that. I, I think, like more generally, um, and maybe this is me being a, a little myopic. Uh, more generally, I feel like there is a uh, there's a malaise. Uh, to to the American public in that there's this sort of uh, there's been a long process of accepting that this is what the new normal is right that right every single day we're going to be hit with some new controversy some new scandal uh, some new form of brutality uh, something that he's going to tweet that's going to set people off. It's going to rankle people. And this is just our normal now. Um, and once that becomes normal, it's hard to, to see our way out of it. Um, so, so even as we, we do all this work, I think we have to, to, to get to the point of forging ahead and what that, what that conjures in my mind um, is like, not just the, the passage of time itself, but like the the breaking of uh, the the norms that created the world that we exist in now, 
I think we have to be more vigilant about uh, the, we have to be more vigilant in naming the atrocities uh, and ensuring that that we don't allow it to become uh, just sort of baked into, like we don't allow this level of uh, horror to become baked into the institutions that we think will save us. The Gatekeepers article addresses the editorial limitations and how these articles and stories are controlled, but also the exhausting nature of having to be seen as a voice of reason or an intellectual in a very irrational and scary time. Smith also addresses the conflict that comes with monetizing one's pain and dilemmas to an audience. Smith addresses that feeling in this passage. I feel as though I built a career by capitalizing on black pain, exploiting that of others and monetizing my own. The dilemma is both personal and political. The guilt of my ambition is intertwined with the sense of a fruitless project. Writing to white people about the black experience is meant to engender their sympathy. Yet it never comes. For hundreds of years, black writers have tried to shift the consciousness of the white majority by telling stories of black suffering. And here we are, in Trump's America. Appeals to the white conscience have not worked. And there are no signs that they ever will. It is a strategy whose burial may be long overdue. Racism and brutality are ingrained in the foundation of this country, along with suppression of those voices being harmed or treated without justice. But with more and more channels for commentary available now, certain gatekeepers seem to be more open, per se, to different viewpoints, but only to a certain extent. One instance that stood out to me recently was CNN firing Mark Lamont Hill for his expression of solidarity with the Palestinian people. Hill has never really hid his feelings on the subject, and while CNN was happy to have him comment on news items of their choosing, the second it got into territory that they weren't comfortable with, they pulled the plug on the partnership. Hill's experience is not unique or new, and while it seems like we're making progress at times, it's hard to escape the feelings that we're only being served what others think is right for us. Yeah, so I'll say uh, Mark's a good friend of mine. Um, He's been very instrumental in my career. Um, And Mark also holds the distinction of being fired by two cable news channels. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) by Fox a long time ago, and he got fired by Fox because uh, some people complained that he had a, a Sada Shakur banner on his Twitter page. Uh, so the market stood on these principles for quite some time. And that's the thing. It's like you, the, the people know what they're getting, right? Right. Um, it's not as if Mark has hidden this. It's not as if Mark has not spoken out uh, for uh, the Palestinian people before and speaking out in anti-apart- uh, at anti-apartheid rallies. He's traveled to Palestine a number of times. Uh, it's not hidden. He, he's not uh, secreted this from, from anyone. Uh, it's just that, you know, once there is an uproar about uh, the about things that are the third rail, the things that you're not supposed to be discussing. Uh, these institutions have decisions to make, and CNN makes this decision on the basis uh, of of the idea that uh, any support for the Palestinian people is being read as anti-Semitism, and therefore that cannot stand. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
and it but the thing is these this is born out of uh ideology that is meant to maintain status quo uh so so when we're looking at some of these some of these media outlets and we're, we're complaining about what the new york times op-ed uh page publishes or the big cover story from the atlantic or stuff that appears in harper's <laughs> not like like i'm not a, i don't have a job there so i don't have to like be a company man um All right but like you know the the idea is that um it's always the the things that are are causing the greatest backlash that these institutions respond to are things that exist outside of their notion of uh what polite discourse entails or what discourse that will not upset uh the american identity uh looks like um so so yeah mark is going to to get fired for that and then you have to ask questions about um what is allowable in these spaces and i i believe that there's still a ability to push into uh these very mainstream uh in media institutions uh and and sort of make them pay attention to or make them have uh conversations that they wouldn't otherwise uh but i also think that we have to like we're required to think outside of them right like we we're not going to uh like generally put like the the revolution is not going to happen because of a uh cnn segment you know I am not the person who will determine like what white gatekeepers do going forward, right? Like they are going to listen to their audience, right? Uh so that relationship has to to change to to understand that. So much of what I I was writing in that in that Harvard essay is about sort of in curiosity of white people in that like do you actually want to hear these things? Are you actually interested? Can you actually imagine black public intellectuals talking to you in a way that made you very uncomfortable? Uh that would that would challenge your world view. Um and I don't think there are that many people who are actually willing to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like like the essay is sort of like you know getting the ground ready for for people to to like sow those seeds to say like hey you've listened to me before a couple years back it felt like you couldn't go to a coffee shop a subway car or anywhere really without seeing or hearing somebody talking about how they were reading Tanahasi Coates and i guess to sort of hammer in Smith's point of the gatekeepers i have often wondered what exactly people were taking away from works like that do white people just watch 12 Years a Slave to beat themselves up for the atrocities of the past? Or are they taking what is written on the page or filmed in a movie and taking these stories to heart and looking within to have these stories change our perspective? But also when you see somebody reading this or watching that, you have to wonder if whether they are truly getting anything out of this beyond a sort of tentative solidarity. What are these people taking away from these works? Besides just being able to present on Goodreads as read or something to proudly display on your bookshelf to show you are a liberal ally. 
Yeah, that's the thing. It's like there are several iterations of the person that's uh, reading it and not doing anything with it, right? Like there's the, the sort of person that is reading it as a, a status symbol, right? Like I yeah. am. I am an intelligent person in the world because I read, I'm reading the right books by the right people. Um, and I just need to signal that to the world and, you know, whatever, do your thing. Um, there, and there's the person that that's sort of reading that, uh, as a sort of masochistic exercise, right. That like I, as a white person, uh, must, must make my penance, right? Like I need to, uh, I got to do the work. So I got to read all of the, the, the black writers and I've got to, to unlearn my racism. And it's like, if the extent of what you're doing is just reading Tanahasi Coates, <laughs> then you're not doing any work, right? Like, and I think yeah. that that's the disconnect is that uh, people think that, by virtue of actions that don't cost them anything, they can affect the change that they that they ostensibly believe in, um, and that's that's just not it. Right? Like it's just not the same. Like going, like sure, you pay a bunch of money to go see Roxanne Gay, but like that's not moving the needle, <laughs> like in the way that you think it is. Uh, it, it, it really is about recognizing where your like literal skin is in the game, uh, and and how how you are benefiting from these systems of oppression, right? And then mm-hmm. organizing for their end. I uh, you know like the thing I uh, I was saying a lot when I was on book tour and I have like white people asking some like a question about like what could they do I'm like well here's the thing you can ask me what you can do but you have to prepare yourself ahead of time for the the fact that you're going to lose something in this and I think no one's being honest about that part uh, people want to both keep all of the things that privilege has brought into their lives uh, and change the system that brought the privilege into their lives. Like it's not going to work that way. And I'm sorry. Like, it's, just, it's not the way that this is going to, to go. Um, there's going to, there, there needs to be a period of, uh, of, of shifting of resources. And so when white people were like, what can I do? I'm just like, Think about the fact that uh, prisons are literally built uh, in a way that benefits white people, right? Like, you, we build a prison out in the middle of nowhere near some small town that suddenly they can get jobs at the prison, right? right. And then they can get jobs in the surrounding area because a hotel is going to go up because people are going to come visit their loved ones locked in prison. Uh, restaurants are going to go up because people will be there without any other food resources. And suddenly the small town like has economic viability. 
And But you know what this small town also needs? More bodies in that prison. And so they're going to start arresting people. Yeah, exactly. And and so so the question is, like, are you ready to lose all of that? Like, are you ready to lose the economic viability of, of a, like, majority white township or what have you uh, because you because you recognize the evilness of the prison system. Now, I'm not saying, like, you have to now be poor. What I'm saying is, are you ready to lose that particular form of uh, economic possibility? And are you willing, then, to look at the idea that you could build a different system and one that does not then privilege your whiteness uh, and that does not give you a sense of superiority over the poor incarcerated people of color like and i and and if you're not willing to consider that if you're not willing to to sit with that thought first um then I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you to do because you're not you're not you're not involved in the things that are actually going to to change, right? Like, and I think about this in like very concrete terms um, in doing this work as again a cisgender hetero male. It's like how many opportunities do I uh, have to miss out on to ensure that my voice is not crowding out the voices of other people. And that is going to include missing out on money that I need. But because I'm invested in a project of justice, I have to say no to things uh, because the the person that needs to talk and, and that needs to be heard uh, is not me all the time. Um, and, and so, so it's just like, it, it, it's, it really comes down to uh are you are you in in this to to lose right like are you in this to lose the things that have built your your sense of self um and I think a lot of the folks that are picking up those books aren't in it for that they're in it to like flog themselves so that they can feel better about the existence of their privilege, right? Like, right. like they, if they go through that moment where they beat themselves up, like then they can go through the other moment of enjoying all of the, the, the spoil of the privilege. Um, and that's not helpful. When I listen to Michael speak about this, I started to think that most people don't think about this at all when they speak or post online. It feels like the idea is to be repentant and strip yourself down, but only to a certain extent. This is sort of what we're getting at when we mention the rise of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Instead of people analyzing themselves and their history and how they can strip their preconceived notions of race and gender, it's easier to look for more articles about the divide, more articles about the lack of compassion or understanding or knowledge for desire for change. We saw this with the Me Too movement as well. It's easy to publicly flog yourself for the misdeeds of men everywhere, but how are men learning from these stories? Is it changing how we teach young boys to act around women, to deny all the preconceived notions of what it is to be a man, to call out those cat callers, to call out sexism? The same set of questions can be asked about race. The changes we need to make start within. Society will not change by simply asking somebody else, what can I do, without actual action coming forth.
what I what I know is that I'm not going to be uh, your ask a black person speed dial for like whatever racial controversy of the day is right. Like right, I'm right. Going to I'm not going to uh, write your op-ed about like the latest police shooting. It's like I've said all that I can possibly say. I think about like what that's about and why it happens and that like what else is there for me to say? What else is there for anyone to say? And it's like, I know that there will be someone that's willing to do that work because of the uh, economy of writing for the internet and the needs of, of, of folks that uh, are still looking for a platform. Uh, and, and it's like, okay, I mean, do that, but it's not, it's not as helpful as we'd like to think it is like the, the these appeals for for white sympathy uh these these attempts at humanizing for white people uh black victims right like if you can't enter into this like already believing in our humanity uh then the problem is not me and, and it's not my responsibility to uh, engage you and, and educate you there or to appeal to you uh, to to change your mind. Like the problem is you if you do not view all people as worthy of dignity and respect. Um, so I'm just not doing that work anymore. What that means then is like now I have the opportunity to allow my imagination to roam a little bit more. And that I'm looking forward to what that looks like. I don't know. Like, I have some ideas uh, right now that I'm going to pitch or have pitched um, that I'm excited about. Uh, and that I think uh, deal with all of the things that I've been talking about for years and been writing about, but do so in a way that doesn't feel like one, as you state, like, so dependent upon moments of tragedy, moments of violence uh, as, as a news hook, um, and also that are allowing me to explore varied interests that I have, um, to draw upon and write about culture that, I'm, that I find fascinating uh, for various reasons that I will be able to write about and, and not... And, and just step into a different uh a different realm of my own uh intellectual curiosity um and and uh political aspiration like looking at the ways in which I think that I can I can uh find the connections between all of these ideas and illuminate them for people and hopefully push people uh to to thinking differently uh, in a way that is actually useful. Um, and, but I'm excited to, to like break free of that and think through some things that uh, aren't so that, I mean, I don't think that like tragedy necessarily ever leaves the work, um, but I don't want to feel like I'm like dependent upon and taking advantage of uh, moments of tragedy. When it feels like we are making progress, 
a wave of prejudice, racism, homophobia, and violence comes swooping back in to set us back further and further. In these times, we look to art to make us feel normal. And sometimes, that art can come from works that we've used and referenced for decades. Not many authors have stood the test of time quite like iconic author James Baldwin in terms of social importance and relevance. In the madness of Trump's America, his words take on a whole new meaning. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. And he is certainly having a moment again. There's the movie adaptation of If Beale Street Could Talk, the documentary about his life titled I Am Not Your Negro, and a constant stream of commentary and revisitations of his career and output. And while we are sometimes quick to compare one author's incredibly important work to these times, it can sometimes overshadow the works of the present day. For instance, Toni Morrison's comparison of ta Coates to Baldwin definitely brought on a whole new spotlight for him. That spotlight also creates a whole new set of issues and unobtainable expectations. This desire to constantly appoint an author the new voice of a generation, but it becomes this sort of appropriation of the author's work to the times. This sort of goes back to the gatekeeper's essay and how we look to these authors sometimes almost tell us what to feel and think, instead of absorbing and adapting ourselves. What I'll say is that like, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that it, it serves anything to be like, well, this author, this author, this author, like, we should, like, be celebrating them as much as James Baldwin, right? Right, like, yeah. I don't know that that level of celebration does anything for any of us. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, I think that, I think, because that's the thing, it's like, as valuable as James Baldwin's work actually is, uh, this level of uh, like this kind of the kind of engagement that this level of exposure brings to his work is so surface level that like are we actually gaining anything from it? Right, like other than. Uh, more posthumous notoriety for James Baldwin, right? Um, like, if we're not sitting with the ideas, if it's not, like, stoking a fire underneath us to, to, to like, pay attention to what he prophesied and to do the work, like, what is all of this, like, notoriety doing? So I don't know that um, I would wish that upon another writer to have their work then... Uh, celebrated and 
watered down and misunderstood and utilized for purposes that are counter to their their actual you know what I mean? Like Yeah, it's, totally. It's like and this is just what happens um to to anybody that gets celebrated in that way. It's just like people take away these pithy quotes that like even when when the the actual like undercurrent of that is something radical is something that is very profound like can make it applicable or like to to the system as it is or like to get you to to do things that are counter to the actual message right um i think about this when i think about like dr king and the way that he's been used and i think about you know just every single uh, revolutionary figure of our history, the ways in which their work uh, comes, become, it becomes subsumed into the American identity in a way that does not alter the American identity so much as it alters the identity of the, the revolutionary figures to make them into like American icons, right? And I, and I, and I say American is very loaded with uh, the sense that American denotes like white supremacist, homophobic, uh, patriarchal capitalist thinking, right? Like that is what it is to be American. Uh, And so I don't want James Baldwin to continue to be Americanized. (laughs) I don't want any other writers and thinkers that are challenging our sense of the American to continue to be uh, wrapped up in that. In the age of Trump, we have seen a steady rise in revisionist history. This type of revisionist history was on full display recently with the death of George H.W. Bush. This thought of maybe things weren't so bad during those years. This just feels incredibly problematic. There is no such thing as a perfect presidency, and granted, Trump has made past administrations look like complete geniuses, but it's become incredibly troublesome when I see articles recalling this more civil time in American politics. Articles that ignore the Iraq War, the Willie Horton ad, and etc. and etc. Where courage is confused with this sort of longing for the quote, last wasp president. Despite the current attack on our constitution and norms and beliefs, we must not allow the past to be scribbled out. I mean, there are a few things there. I think, um, I think it is in part the effect of Trump. Right, like I think that um, I say, I, I tell people like Obama is going to escape all historical criticism, right? Because he sits between Bush and Trump, right? <laughs> it's just like no one is going to ever say a bad thing about him because of what came after him, uh, because it, by comparison, it just looks so much better. And I think that that's happened even with Bush, but like. Uh, with both Bushes and with Reagan and with with all of them, uh, is that what we're looking at is so frightening. And but but this is the thing. I think it, it's frightening to to people for very different reasons. Uh, it is frightening to uh, a it is frightening to liberals because their sense of what American politics is. Is, is this world in which these elite 
uh, these elite people with very similar backgrounds come together and discuss their differences and are still friendly with one another at the end of the day. Uh, Because like the American way is that we listen to everyone, even though it's just these elite folks that come from the same backgrounds. It is that there's room for all of these voices to coexist and that we can disagree without being disagreeable. Like that's sort of a liberal like idea. Um, And, and Trump upsets that because it's just like, he just says out loud all of the nasty things that he's thinking about liberals. uh, And they, they don't appreciate that, uh, you know, he, he's bucking the, the, uh, the traditions and norms that have been set. Uh, and so they become, they like, they pine for a world in which they felt like they were, uh, still accepted into the elite club, uh, and that their conservative counterparts, uh, respected them in some way. And, and it, it's not even that they, they respected them. It's just like, y'all are on the same page, basically. Um, and and I think that that's the thing. It's like it's it's not about even uh, it's not just about Trump, but it's about the protection of their own sense of what the American identity is, and and that being wrapped up in the presidency uh, is that the American president is above and beyond politics, right? Like they represent all of us. They are our figurehead. They are they they are like because to them american means uh devoid of politics it means apolitical it is just all of us together being like under the flag and singing the anthem right um, right but but none of that's true right like every single one of these things especially the american presidency is political it is born out of uh, differences. It is it 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 is inherently divisive, uh, and and I think that there's there's a desire now uh, during this time to rescue uh, the identity that people that liberals think that they're losing um, that has never actually existed. Right? Like Obama was a divisive president. Bush was a divisive president. Clinton was a divisive president because that's the nature of the position, right? Like you rep, you represent, uh, you were elected by a portion of the country and you were not elected by another portion of the country. And they, the other portion of the country disagrees with you. And even some of the people that elected you disagree with you. Like there are divisions. It is not like it's not the end of the world that we are divided. What's the pro- the problem is what's the source of these divisions? And the source of these divisions is the fact that the American system of governance uh, has denied rights to people on the basis of race and gender and sexuality and class and that is that is the problem uh and an unwillingness to engage with those as problems and to see politics as a realm in which uh you're you're meant to rise above 
those disagreements to be uh, American in the sense of uh, being a representative of the country in, in a non-political way robs us of any sense that we can have those uh, very real discussions and debates and fights uh, without like tearing apart the fabric of the country. And it's just like, well, maybe it needs to be torn apart if the, if the results of us being polite to one another uh, are George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and Donald Trump, right? Like if the, if those are the results and like, I can even just throw in and like, not to let them off the hook. I mean, the democratic party in response to uh the retrenchment of conser- like conservatism uh, in, in the past like forty to fifty years has embraced wholeheartedly uh, the idea that they must capitulate to the right in order to bring the country together. And it's like, well, you're bringing the country together under the auspice of uh, capitulating to racist and sexist and homophobes. Like, what do, what does this serve us? Um, I think that uh, a lot of people have to, before they can like, be honest about George H.W. Bush in his death, they have to be honest about like what the uh, actual American political system is, what the American presidency is, what the American identity actually is, um, or else they're, they're, they're going to put on those rose-colored glasses and be nostalgic for a kinder, gentler version of what they uh, say that they're fighting against now. It's just so startling. I, I I've been like trying to like I've been trying to like come like to grasp with it and like just some. It's kind of startling too because some of like my favorite writers, just like the stuff they were writing about this. I'm like, wait, no, like what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you know? Yeah. It's like, like, I don't, yeah. I, and I think you know the uh, that's the other thing is that like. You know, within media, right? Like, and the media is not exempt from this. Like, the the proximity to power like alters your perception, right? Like, once you, I think, what was it? Somebody at the Atlantic sort of wrote a defense of uh, like access journalism, and that yeah. Yeah. What it what what it's able to do is humanize these figures for us in a way that like some like some sort of adversarial German journalism would not, uh, and that like it makes us feel better about our leaders to know that like George H W Bush was like really broken up that he threw out a bad first pitch like who gives a fuck right yeah, like, exactly this is the same guy did the the fucking Willie Horton ad you know it's like you know, it's like if people are forgetting about it. it's like oh yeah. Exactly. We, like, I genuinely do not care that that kept him up at night, right? Yeah. What I care about is, uh, you know, the Iran-Contra affair, right? Like, that's, that's what I'm worried about. Um, yeah. And, and and so, but, but like, for some uh, in media, like, the the objective is to get close to power and to be powerful themselves and to get close to power. That means you have to absolve a lot of the things that the most powerful are doing. Uh, and that then, and that access that, that, that is then granted means that you yourself become powerful. You are able to dictate the terms on which the stories are told. Um, and that's a dangerous game to be playing when so much is at stake, when so many lives are at stake, right? Like, 
if you are chummy with uh, the, the Michigan governor, like, are you going to ask him tough questions about what happened in Flint? Right? Like, is, yeah, is, yeah. Like, what, what are you, what are you gaining access for? And I think so many immediates think that the story is in and of itself, uh, just talking to these people, like just having conversations with them, just hearing them. And that's not the story at all. Personally, for me, one refuge or source of stress relief has been sports. I've always been a diehard baseball fan, but in the last few years, I've been finding myself really gravitating more and more to the NBA and watching games. It's so refreshing watching a sport where you know you align politically with most of the players. And yes, sometimes we need to take politics out of certain things, but I cannot help but feel nothing but an incredible sense of pride and joy when I watch LeBron James or see his actions in his community outside of the game. You may find refuge in garbage TV or cooking shows or a show that shows you how to fold towels or getting rid of stuff that doesn't bring you joy. We all have our own unique sources of comfort, but nothing has done that more for me than sports, and Smith is right there with me. Brand up, you know. This is my thing about LeBron is I think LeBron is, aside from being probably, in, in my mind, the greatest NBA player of all time. Yeah. I think he's the best storyteller of any athlete. And, and I say that because you look at, and it, some of this is sort of like incident, like it, 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 he didn't participate in it, but getting drafted to Cleveland, like getting drafted right next to his hometown, struggling to get to the next level there, like struggling to win the championship, going to Miami is like a heel turn that he knew was coming. Like he, he had, like, and, he, and he embraced it. He did it. And then he wins people over, wins the championships, proves that the doubters and haters wrong. Then he goes back home. Now he's a folk hero, right? Like he, yeah. he's the hometown savior, gets them a championship. And like he is, the, he is, he is unimpeachable now. And then having done that and having done, like, having dragged these, like, lackluster teams to the NBA Finals he and losing, he says, you know what, if I'm going to make this sort of an effort, what I'm going to do is not do it here. I'm going to take it to one of the most storied NBA franchises of all time, and I'm going to do it in that uniform. And it's like... And he knows that miles, there are certain milestones that he's about to, to pass that he, like doing them in a Lakers jersey is only going to add to the story. So like when he passed Wilt Chamberlain on, on the all-time scoring list, he does it in a Lakers jersey. When Wilt Chamberlain wore that Lakers jersey like to accumulate a bunch of those points. And so now we have these highlights of LeBron being connected to that history. He's going to pass Kobe Bryant at some point. I mean, he's got to get past Jordan. And then he's going to pass Kobe Bryant at some point. He's going to do it in a Lakers uniform, right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 that, and all this time, too, He's dragging this bunch of this young core along with him and like making them better and doing it for a franchise and that, that like every, so many people love and doing it under Magic Johnson. He's so, he's so uh, he understands like every single aspect of his own story and like and he's writing it along the way. And but this is the thing. 
he has to be good enough to be able to write that story. Like it doesn't like the story doesn't happen if he's not able to accomplish what it is that he does on the court. And so that's just amazing to me. So one, like have the sense of yourself as the architect and uh, of your own story. Uh, in in the moves that he makes like off the court or like with regards to his career but to be able to do it on the court as well like to know what you need to do in in order to build that narrative he's the greatest storyteller in sports history thank you so much for listening to episode nine of missing words I want to thank Michael Denzel Smith for taking time out of his very, very busy schedule to talk with us. Be sure to follow him on Twitter to keep up with all of his latest work. You can follow him at Michael, which is spelled M-Y-C-H-A-L, Smith. As always, thank you to Bill Schultz for producing this episode. And here comes the house cleaning. Please subscribe to the podcast through whatever platform you use to listen to us. Any reviews or love you could give us would be immensely appreciated in spreading the word for the show. Thank you so much for all your support so far. We'll be back soon with episode 10 of Missing Words featuring New York City Council member Justin Brennan. Thank you for listening.